Last week, you might have heard Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announce a new plan to make Australia one of the world's top 10 arms exporters. Formally titled a Defence Export Strategy, the plan will see $3.8 billion set aside to assist arms manufacturers to sell their equipment overseas. A range of not-for-profit and aid organisations have so far come out against the plan, with Tim Costello stating that any money made from this would be blood money. Another group dismayed by the decision is the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, or IPAN, a group that actually lobbies for the prevention of war and military expansion. Stephen Daly is a spokesperson for IPAN and he joins us today on the line. Thanks for being there, Stephen. No worries. Good to talk to you. And so we already export um, high-tech defence equipment um, overseas, which I actually wasn't aware about until relatively recently. But with these um, additional funds that the government has set aside, what sort of equipment are we talking about that we're um, presumably going to be exporting to the world? Well, there's there's quite a lot of different things we we export: um, bushmaster, um, military vehicles, missiles, uh, cyber technology. Um, we're also one of the biggest arms Im- and military equipment importers in the world for our head population. So we're heavily involved in this industry, um, uh, and uh, we're obviously going to be even more heavily involved with this announcement. And were you expecting an announcement like this at IPAN? No, uh, not particularly. Funnily enough, we just adopted a national campaign to uh, oppose the military-industrial sector. Um, Basically, Australia is committed to spending billions on arms in the next few years. Um, And we thought that was a terrible waste of money as well as being um, immoral and useless since Australia has no... Um, real enemies, um, except for those who are enemies because of our alliance with the United States and the hosting of American facilities. So, um, you know, that's that's something that we just adopted, and then a couple of days later we heard the announcement. And so the government has, has mainly spoken about job creation in, in terms of this being kind of a good thing for Australia. Is that the main reason behind this decision, do you think, or is there more to it? Well, if it is, it's another idiotic decision because um, this is one of the most inefficient ways of subsidising jobs. Um, you might um, provide 20 to 50 times as many jobs subsidising even automotive manufacturing or never mind newer industries like renewables or um, um, electric cars uh, or health transport. Um, Generally, uh, the military-industrial complex is highly capital-intensive, incredibly corrupt, uh, a lot of rorts going on. Um, I'm talking mainly about the American industry, but I'm sure it applies to some degree to the Australian industry as well. Uh, And it just does not produce very many jobs. There's about 20,000 in Australia at the moment. That's pretty tiny base to build from. Um, And uh, most of this money, $3.8 billion, will be going to overseas transnationals because they've already got their offices in Australia and um, the, the, the and I swear the government talks about small business but you know small businesses collecting this sort of money I, I don't think so I think they'll be partnering as junior partners with big transnationals at best um, uh, and you know people like Lockheed Martin uh, Boeing uh, Raytheon uh, already got offices in Australia including in South Australia as well it's interesting too. I mean, the quotes that I saw coming out of the report uh, was that this industry is particularly complex, it's highly competitive, it's non-transparent, and a lot of countries 
preference local content as well and and as well as the sort of protracted contracting. So um, jobs can go for really long periods of time. And I suppose um, from where you sit, uh, do you think it's going to bring the jobs that, that we've been sort of promised or, and highlighted? Not at all, not at all. I mean, it's it's not competitive at all. It's generally um, oligopical. Uh, the governments give uh, contracts, as they say, to long-run contracts to the same companies over and over again to those ones that I mentioned, like Lockheed Martin, etc., and, and a few others. Um, and they're the most profitable um, industries in the world. Uh, the military-industrial complex is, is generally that. Um, uh, and so the, the, the idea that it can become efficient and competitive is, is just nonsensical. There are numerous audits, uh, for instance, of the American military-industrial complex showing how much money is wasted um, on the contracts and how much more governments are charged than they need to be. I mean, there are apocryphal stories of $800 screws and $10,000 toilets, uh, but one specific one I noticed from last year is um, a $43 million service station built in uh, Afghanistan um, in part of the uh, American efforts there. Um, that's That sort of thing indicates the, the kind of licence that these companies have. And the government's identified a range of priority markets for this um, for arms equipment, including the Middle East, the Indo-Pacific region, Europe, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand. So actually um, quite a large portion of the world, really, and, and have um, reassured the public that uh, there'll be kind of checks and balances to make sure that, that arms um, don't fall into the wrong hands. I'm wondering, I mean, if we're talking about armoured vehicles and so on, they're quite large, and if you're selling to a country like Canada or New Zealand... Um, you may be, uh, you know, more assured that it's not going to fall into the wrong hands. But what about areas that have um, kind of greater conflict going on and so on? Would there be enough checks, in your opinion, in terms of where they're actually going and, and who's going to be using them? Well, just in the last year, Australia's um, signed a memorandum of understanding on the so-called defence industry. I never call it defence industry without um, inverted commas because it's not defence. But it's signed a memorandum of understanding with Israel. Uh, they've also uh, had four approved four licences with Saudi Arabia. And, you know, Australia's not got the brightest record in human rights in the world, but if you talk about those two countries, it's hardly a gro grosser um, abusers of human rights. We all know what Israel's done to the Palestinians. Um, when they attacked Gaza a few years ago, they used missiles and uh, bombs from around the world, including Raytheon, uh, who are uh, got offices in Australia. I'm not saying they manufactured the missiles here, but Raytheon does. Um, and uh, Saudi Arabia, well, we, they're, they're conducting a gigantic war of annihilation against the people of Yemen at the moment. They're um, a million people with cholera, seven million people starving. Um, and uh, Australia wants to have um, more uh, selling of equipment to the Saudi Arabia. And, of course, they were asked whether any of Australian equipment was used in this war or is being used in the war in Parliament, and they won't answer. They use that old excuse of commercial inconfidence. So that's just an example of some of the countries that uh, we um, sell to. And uh, if anyone looks at the Middle East now and thinks what it needs is more arms, they must have rocks in the head. <laughs>
Stephen Daly is speaking with us. He's from IPAN, which is the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network. And we're talking about the Australian government's plan to increase arms export and actually aiming to be uh, among the top 10 arms exporting countries in the world. And of course, this hasn't come to fruition yet. It's just been announced last week. And I wonder, I mean, talking about the way that arms are used, Stephen, I mean, Australia in the past has played a role in peacekeeping in um, East Timor and the Solomons and things like that. I mean, is there an argument that we need to keep our industries up to date in order to be able to provide those sorts of services? Well, keeping your industries up to date is one thing. Um, selling arms around the world is quite another thing. Um, you can keep your industries up to date for the purposes that Australia needs for its military, which is um, defence and, as you said, peacekeeping. Uh, but generally our military is not used for that. It's used for interoperability with the United States. The submarines we just built for enormous expense and we're going to build more or, sorry, we're going to purchase more. Australia might get to paint a few of them, but that's about all. Um, They're going to be used for interoperability with the Americans, um, uh, not for defence of Australia. We bought uh, the, uh, sorry, $12 billion worth of the F-35, the most uh, expensive um, single military-industrial complex uh, contract in history, uh, and it's, the plane doesn't work properly. Uh, so that's the sort of um, things that we're buying with our equipment. They're not for um, defence or peacekeeping. They're for uh, offence um, in support of the Americans. It sounds like a waste of money when you put it like that. But I mean, when, when we um, think about the um, you know public funds that are directed to different government policies and initiatives and so on, I mean, three point eight billion dollars is is really significant um, to essentially prop up an industry and increase exports, arms exports to the world. Do you feel that the public or the community is um, is kind of okay with this, or or are we you know on balance quite critical? Well, we've already seen the. Um Unions involved in the uh, manufacturing industry, particularly in the former car industry, um, basically say, well, we were told when the car industry was closed down that um, the the government wasn't going to pick winners. Well, this is exactly what they're doing, um, and they're throwing money at this, um, buckets of money. And by the way, state governments are also throwing money at it. They've been doing it for some time, including my own state government in South Australia. Uh, So it's not even just this $3.8 billion. But, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who will be jacked off with this, especially when they see how little return there is for Australia in it. $3.8 billion towards um, concessional loans to an industry that's the most profitable in the world is um, sounds like overkill to me, and it literally and figuratively. And I, I suppose one report I've read in the last couple of days, and I suppose when you put this bigger price tag on an industry, uh, journalists will dig. And we're finding out a little bit more about the export finance and insurance corporation that's somehow going to facilitate this money. And I wonder, uh, you know, with all those kinds of ambiguous um, spends that you, you cited earlier, Stephen, whether we might have the facilities within government already to make sure this money is spent responsibly. Well, they've got that office and they're setting up a new one, Um, so at least it'll get 
jobs for a few more bureaucrats. That's that's um, that's one benefit, I suppose. But it's a very expensive benefit, three point eight billion dollars. So no, I mean the the record, as I said, of the American um, military-industrial complex is incredible rorts. Um, and uh, misallocations, waste, um, the uh, position they're in selling to governments um, means that they can get away with these sorts of things. Uh, you know, again, I'm using American examples because this, the Australian one is shrouded in, in a greater degree of secrecy, but one example is that Lockheed Martin, the biggest arms manufacturer in the world, was um, awarded a contract recently for $60 million just to drop in the bucket, but in order to... to uh, fix up problems in the uh, F-35 building program. They are the builders of the F-35, so they've basically been given $60 million to fix up their own mistakes. That's the sort of thing that goes on regularly in the military-industrial complex, so I can't see it being any different in Australia, especially when a lot of the companies involved will be offices of these transnationals I'm talking about. And, and it sounds to me, Stephen, from, from what I've read, that, I mean, obviously this is a, a coalition government policy, but Labor seems to be kind of broadly in, in favour of, of supporting our um, defence export industry. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the, the, the so-called Labor left, as far as I'm concerned, the only thing they've said is that we've got to be very careful about who we sell to. The idea of, of boosting the industry is fine with them, uh, um, Albanese said something like, um, we're always in favour of, of more jobs, uh, as if more jobs was the only issue, rather than, you know, whether you get more jobs from some other industry or some less immoral industry. Um, so, yes, you're right. The Labour Party has made very little protest about this um, and has uh, very little critical to say about it, except, as I said, talking about uh, we've got to be careful about who we sell to. And I suppose um, just to, to end with an open question, I suppose, I mean, how likely is it that Australia will succeed in, in raising its status in this in this sector and becoming one of the top 10 arms manufacturers in the world, Stephen? Well, you might become, we might see some figures along those lines, but as I said, uh, mainly through um, joint ventures, of smaller Australian businesses with uh, big um, transnationals, most of whom are American, and the profits will go to those companies. Um, so uh, I think the benefit to Australia uh, of a boost in the industry will be small indeed, as, and, uh, and it will also um, further uh, diminish our reputation in the world. Um, uh, you know, we'll become seen as immoral in another area as, long as, as well as refugees and uh, treatment of Indigenous people. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Triple R. That's fine. Uh, Stephen Daly, uh, Daly, sorry, um, from IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, and uh, speaking to us there from Adelaide about the government's plan to increase arms exports. And I suppose we're going to have to see how this plays out. And across Melbourne, public housing estates have been sold to developers as part of the state government's revitalisation of public housing program. Just last week, Premier Daniel Andrews announced the redevelopment of the Markin estate in Ashburton would go ahead with a mix of a affordable social and public housing despite local resident concerns that there isn't sufficient public housing in that mix but actually it's hard to know if we're getting the balance right as there's little public information available on any of the development deals carolyn weitzman is concerned about this lack of disclosure she's professor in urban planning at the university of melbourne and i suppose it's worth starting carolyn by spelling out what's actually happening with this public housing renewal program
program that um, the state government has launched um, a matter of a year ago or so. Yeah, so around the world, um, there's been progressive disinvestment in public housing as um, particularly national governments have stepped away from housing as part of the social safety net. So two things have happened. Um, People with lower and lower incomes are in public housing, and even if they get any Commonwealth rent assistance, so housing benefit as part of their benefit package, it isn't enough to pay the rent and paying the ongoing costs. So what's happening in Victoria is happening in England, it's happening in the US, it's happening in Canada, it's happening in New Zealand, it's happening in um, all rich countries around the world, that public housing estates have gotten run down. Uh, What um, the state government is doing is about a year ago, it announced a uh, affordable housing policy, which was great. Victoria was the last state in Australia to develop an affordable housing policy, but there's a lot of really important initiatives in that affordable housing policy. One of the initiatives is to do a massive redevelopment of public housing estates. As you say, there were a couple of redevelopments of public housing estates in the last Labour government and also in the Liberal government um, that preceded it. and um, but this is nine estates, eleven hundred units. It's a much bigger scale of redevelopment. And the, the issues or, or concerns that you spell out with your colleagues in the conversation article is around um, a lack of transparency uh, around public housing projects involving private developers. And I suppose to go broad for a moment, how how viable is it to sell off public land for private development and, and have a mandated kind of um, minimum amount that can be or that, that is uh, invested in public housing? Is that a viable approach? Well, okay. First of all, selling off public land is like shooting heroin. It makes you feel good for a bit, but it isn't terribly good for you in the long run. There's a finite amount of public land owned in really well-located areas. We're talking about Flemington and about Richmond and about uh, a lot of places where land is extremely in high demand, very close to public transportation, very close to schools, very close to services. If you look at the other disposable income, which is really limited if people are paying over 50% as they are of their income on housing, you'd want the poorest people in the uh, city who've gotten priced out of the private market to have access to public transportation, employment, services, etc. So um, that public land is a finite resource. Once you've sold it, you're never going to get it back. So um, there have been a number of public housing redevelopments, and we're looking specifically at ones in uh, Vancouver, but also in San Francisco and some American um, cities, where uh, redevelopment has occurred, the public housing has been improved. Improved. Yes, there has been um, a bigger income uh, mix, so it's, there's been a bit of a public-private partnership going on, but the government retains ownership of the land. What's more, certainly in the American instances, all of the costs and possible alternatives are publicly available. So we know how much the repairs would cost. We know how much um, the land is valued at. We know that... Um, other alternatives have been looked at. But in this case, it's happening very um, uh, 
quickly. The notion was that there'd be the announcement of this redevelopment. There would be um, the redevelopment happening with very little public input, um, uh, uh, contracts made with um, the private sector, almost uh, fully not with the uh, non-profit housing sector. And that's another issue. To what extent do you involve the private sector? To what extent do you involve the non-profit sector? Um, in a number of other jurisdictions, the um, non-profit sector has gotten various mm, loan guarantees, mortgage guarantees, slightly cheaper land, because the notion was to keep it non-profit, and there, I mean, non-profit. And there, I mean, you, you, you argue really, and you and your colleagues, Carolyn, that the lack of transparency around the deals is of concern, that we're investing in public housing gets a tick from most people. But what is it that we're losing with regards to this? Um, I mean, it's even called secrecy, I think, in your article. Uh, what aren't we finding out? Well, everything is supposedly commercial and confidence. And where are we hearing that again? We're hearing it in terms of the Western District and some of the other large uh, freeways that have recently been approved, the Northeast Link, perhaps East-West Link. It appeared in a footnote kind of thing. Uh, we've seen it with the Apple Store in Federation Square. We've seen it with some redevelopments in the central city where the um, planning minister so has taken over. So we're kind of used to, aren't we? And I think this, this... It's a hallmark almost of Victorian planning. And I'm not saying that it's a Labour government issue. It's happened at least as much uh, with Fisherman's Bend. With the Liberal government, it's bad planning. Planning. So, Stop doing it. <laughs> so we, the, the big concern is that we can't, as a public, make an assessment whether we're getting best value for our assets. Absolutely. And as I say, that amount of land, I mean, you know, we uh, should be upset about what happened with Fisherman's Bend. We should be concerned about what's happening. The previous redevelopments, for instance, in Kensington and Carlton Estates, very highly valued land, very little uplift. In fact, almost no uplift in terms of um, public housing quantity and quality. And um, that is a concern because if it's just a short-term revenue gain for the state government, plus a big um, payoff for uh, private developers who are willing to take the quote-unquote risk, then we've got a problem. I think that the, that land is in such demand in central Melbourne that we could be doing a much better uh, deal that um, involves the the air value above the land but doesn't sell the land underneath. And and you cite examples internationally, particularly in in the US and Canada as well, where um, there's greater disclosure and and less secrecy around this and it hasn't served as a detriment to these private companies and developers. So why why the secrecy? There's a longer background paper on the Transforming Housing website. We do have a comparison with others. Uh, Why the secrecy? Well, I think that Australian governments in general are not that great at um, uh, public-private partnerships. They tend to overestimate the risk and underestimate the benefit to the private uh, partners. Um, A lot of people who are in state government Um, There was a big spill, particularly during the Liberal government um, uh, in the earlier part of this decade, of experienced negotiators, if you will. If I'm going to put some criticism on my own profession, I think a lot of planners don't necessarily know the economics of development, and so they might be underestimating things. But I also think that there's a general... 
Mm, I don't even know how to put it. A malaise in state government where there's so much fear of public involvement because of NIMBY, etc., that they want to look resolute. They want to look as though they're doing things, darn it. Um, but you do need to look at the things they're doing. Everybody, as you said, everybody wants public housing development. People living in public housing are concerned about the conditions that they live in. The question is how to make the best deal to promote social equity, social justice in Victoria, I don't think we're getting the best deal. I suppose, I mean, I was really heartened last year and and then again recently when we heard residents in Ashburton saying we want public housing, we want enough Mm. of it. And I suppose if we can move off the the transparency for a little bit and talk about some of the changes happening in public housing. So some of the four-bedroom type units are being changed into two-bedroom Units well, one bedroom and units. one bedroom units, yeah. and so can you sort of speak about how, on one hand, we could have you know maybe just as many or uh, units, but actually have fewer beds in some of this public housing that we're getting? Originally, a lot of the public housing was built for, and it, you know, it was a different era, the '60s and '70s for nuclear working families and now they're um, the fastest growing group of um, poor people are older women generally living alone Um, so there does need to be um, one bedroom units for um, uh, young adults who've grown out of foster care for singles for as I say uh, older women and men But the other thing that's happened is that the proportion of social housing has gone down from about 6% in the 80s to 3.5% in the um, uh, current uh, period. And ironically, and again, I'm... I think it may have been on purpose. There was some research commissioned in 2016 about the need for social housing. Judith Yates, an uh, eminent economist, did that report. It was released after the housing strategy in May of 2017, when the housing strategy came out in February of 2017. And it was talking about a quantum of at least six to 8,000 units to keep the um, uh, social housing level at 3.5, at least twice as much, at least 12,000 units per year to, with the growing population, to redress the greatest need, which is um, social housing for low-income people. We're talking about at least 10% of uh, 11,000 units, um, which is... um, Uh, you know, maybe, sorry, 1,100 units, which is 110 units. So it's just a drop in the bucket of need. Now, again, I want to be fair here. I think the state government is um, doing as much as it can in terms of revenue. It would need to have the federal government stepping in. But again, if I'm going to give a parallel, the British Columbia government started doing um, re development of public housing a few years ago when there was a very right-wing government in Canada. And they kind of put their house in order. They said, this is what the state government can do. We're going to keep the land. We're going to give um, uh, low-cost mortgages. We're going to give low-cost loans. We're going to um, beef up the um, uh, 
uh, nonprofit housing sector. And now there are billions of dollars available from a new federal government in Canada that's taking housing as social infrastructure seriously. And because British Columbia has its house in order, it can take advantage of that. I have no doubt that in the upcoming federal election, whenever it is, affordable housing is going to be a big issue. Um, certainly, uh, the Labour Party has been talking about an infrastructure program that would include social housing. The coalition government has been talking about a bond aggregator that's a private-public partnership, but it is um, financing that could go towards social housing. The state needs to be ready to take advantage of that um, money by putting in the biggest asset it has, which is land. Yeah, definitely. And I, I wonder too about this mix of when you have private and affordable and public or social housing all together. And I suppose I can see many upsides to that, but how is that actually playing out? Social mix is a very contentious subject. The bottom line is that in a place like Fitzroy, a place like Flemington, you already have social mix. You have poor people and rich people living in very close proximity. The challenge is to get some of the rich parents going to schools that are stigmatized because there's social housing kids there. Um, so there is already social mix. What happened in the Carlton estate was, um, you know, there's a number of different ways you can do social mix in the Nicholson, which is a building in Brunswick. Um, you have salt and pepper. You don't know which units are owned as social housing and which ones are run as uh, private housing. And that can work really well if you have a good management system. Um, in this case, and in most cases, it's separate buildings. The problem in Carleton is that some of the private buildings have access, for instance, to um, uh, gardens that um, the public housing residents don't have access to. So they're, in essence, little gated communities, and that's problematic. Uh, so that's not really social mix. The idea of social mix is that rich kids and poor kids are uh, going to school together, playing together. Um, if you continue to have that kind of um, stigma, that kind of lack of um, mix in schools and social clubs, etc., to say that there's rich people and poor people living next to one another is, is meaningless. They're living in different worlds. Mm. And in, in your article, in, in the conversation, you um, speak about the state government being notable, notable for its absence at a recent workshop you held um, through the Transforming Housing uh, Research Network. Yeah. Um, I mean, in your experience, given that you're kind of in the dark around some of these public-private partnerships um, that are happening and, and also around where the government got this 10%, a minimum 10% figure from, is there a kind of genuine engagement or willingness on the part of the state government to engage with research groups to um, invest in and develop the best policy possible for, for public housing? What's well, your the whole notion of our research network has been that we want to do policy-relevant um, research. And um, there's certain parts of the state government that we've been working with really successfully. There's certain parts of... So we've been working with private developers, nonprofits, um, uh, finance uh, folks, including some big banks that want to step in if the um, taxation enablers are right, um, state government, local government. We've been trying to work with uh, federal government. We really want to make sure that um, the information that we're developing is relevant to them and will be used by them. There's some parts of state government that we're working with pretty successfully. 
um, and it's disappointing. We went to them and um, to the um, DHHS and said that we wanted to do this workshop, um, that we wanted to include um, public housing um, residents, that we wanted to look at alternatives. And initially, there was some um, uh, excitement about it, but um, I think that. Um, there's a certain fear of criticism or getting um, sidetracked off, um, you know, getting things done. Uh, and that may have been what happened. Well, let's see what happens. And uh, this policy has a, a fair way to play out. So um, no doubt we'll be talking to you about it again, Carolyn. Well, the next interesting thing to uh, um, look for is the inquiry that will be happening at the state uh, parliament um, this month. Um, on public housing redevelopment and I hope there's a good discussion there. Let's find out. Thanks so much. Well, we have ModCon's Erica Dunn here in the studio. How are you doing? Good day, Hi, Erica. Good day, Thanks for having me. And you've been um, you've been travelling this morning. You've I've come just, here fresh from the bush. I just <laughs> rushed in post almost stepping on a brown snake and um, nothing makes you feel more alive. Really? So. <laughs> it's never happened to me, thankfully. <laughs> Happy to be here. Mm. So when you say almost stepped on it, how close were you? It was just sort of, I mean, it was trying to get out of my road, I guess, but yeah. I was just trying to get in, chuck my stuff in the car and go. And then, yeah, it was a bit of a close call. But, um, you know, we're both lucky, me yeah. and the snake. That's right. We're do both you, fine. Do you stay still? You freeze? That's the thing? I'd like to think, to I sort of was laughing the other day, actually, I mean, even on Mary Creek, I was walking my dog the other day and almost stepped on a snake. And, you know, I think you visualise what you would like to do when you see a snake. And I <laughs> just sort of did this weird magic Jedi thing where suddenly I had my dog and I went about two metres in the other direction. I'd done this weird judo leap. <laughs> and um, that's not what you meant to do. No. <laughs> Why are you you're supposed to stand still, so. something like a bear. Like Let's not you... make this a PSA. I don't, I don't really know what you meant to do. Well, you know how you sp we're supposed to have this... Thing in our brains, if you even if you've never seen a snake, you're supposed to immediately get fear yeah. when you see them. And my mother-in-law has is the exception that proves the rule because one time she was walking in the bush, stepped over a snake and thought, "That's a weird place to keep a rubber snake." Oh, what? It's like she, she did not hard. have a fear response. Oh and God! I thought, there you go. What did she pick it up? No, no, no. Just kept walking. Went, uh -huh. oh, maybe it was a real it was snake. real <laughs> bush. You know, no fight or flight response there. <laughs> anyway, we digress. That's right. We're not here to talk about snakes and what to do if you do happen to come across one. There's probably places you can go to find out about yeah. what you should do. Call in and tell us. That's right. Um, but we're here to talk about ModCon and um, you're playing tonight down at the Northcote Social Club and uh, it's always such a great night down there, the free shows that are put on. And it's so good. Uh, I think Vaughan has been um, responsible for Wind It Up and um, Adam Camilleri for Monday Night Mass and mm. it's just sort of an ongoing great staple of the week. The price is right. It's always great bands. That's right. And, um, yeah, tonight Hexted are headlining um, and they're incredible. And, and Michael Beach, who um, I just think was one of the underestimated records of last year. His mm, album is so good. Um, and at the start, Heatwave, who are an amazing duo as well. So they it's are. pretty good company. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, you must be flat out busy. You're also playing with Tropical Fuckstorm lately as well. And, um, and Harmony, we've got another. Yeah, I've got sort of, um, yeah got three albums coming out in the next six months but we managed to do a little bit of a tetris and it's not anything overlapping which is really good mm. um yeah so we sort of just happened to luckily stagger those releases but um i think modcon is first off the off the rank 
Um, we've got a single launch. We had that one we just heard last year and then we've got the, a new one coming out in the middle of Feb and then um, pretty much gung-ho to the album launch in April. Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait. Yeah. And there's, there's how many? Is there an album on the horizon? Yes. For them as well? right. So we've been cooking away. We had a very funny... Uh, Absolutely smash and grab recording five days in a um, the Kyneton Mechanics Institute last year and um, punished 17 songs out of each other, um, mostly at the helm of our fearless leader, Tom Lincoln. And, um, yeah, I think it's coming out in August. I think a single is slated for April, so... Good Fantastic. stuff. So you got the regional recording thing <laughs> going on. So Nagambi with Mogcon and then... Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, there's pros and cons. I think it's good. I mean, we recorded in Nagambi um, the Mogcon album last uh, April on the Easter weekend and um, it was really good for us in terms of distraction. Um, we really just get in the zone for better or worse. I mean, cabin fever sometimes breeds really great ideas as well. So um, there's a sort of weird, you can really cultivate something mad out in the bush. Mm. Um, but it's, I guess it's also just the, um, the, yeah, the quiet and the solitude and just having to focus on one thing is a bit of a luxury. There's shit stuff as well. We had a day with... TFS, um, where all the power went out and there was this, you know, the torrential storms at the end of last year and we just had Oof. this epic, <laughs> really bad couple of days where we just couldn't do anything and, yeah. So what do you do? You just hang out? Just play Yahtzee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> drink beer. <laughs> go swimming and, you know, try not to step on too many snakes. <laughs> Yahtzee, just digress again. It's probably one of the most frustrating games. I played with a friend over summer and he rolled a Yahtzee on his first roll and then when you can't do anything about it, I'm like, well, you got one straight away. I'm going to get one eventually. But you can get and double Yahtzee. Yeah, I'm yet to see that. Okay. I'm not a yeah. season player. Well, yeah. double Yahtzee, you can get 100 points. And then, you know, that's the real amazing mm, moment. Bonanza. You can really stand on your chair and get celebratory. Yeah, you've got it at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I mean, you also have previously played under the moniker Palm Springs. And I kind of thought initially when I heard of ModCon that that might be replacing Palm Springs. But I've read that that's still kind of a thing and you've got you've got some recordings in the can for that project as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm just a manic person and <laughs> Palm Springs just keep on going with that. Like we, the three people in ModCon, um, Sarah and Raquel and I, did release a EP under Palm Springs. So we had played together under that name, the three of us, but really Sarah joined at the end. And um, when we started writing this album, it was very clear that the project could go in a totally different way and it was really exciting. And the songwriting was totally different. And um, for me and, I mean, Raquel both, it was such a joy to have someone just really take over bass duties and um, just opens up, uh, you know, other things that you can do vocally and, I mean, on guitar as well. So then, um, yeah, this has just turned into a completely different thing. And so Palm Springs, I'm just remaining as my intense try to be Karen Dalton, only play like nylon string guitar and um, get heavy folk. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, and I love that kind of stuff as well. Um, and so I do play, I've played a gig recently, but pretty rarely I think it'll it'll be. ModCon's pretty much my favourite at the moment. But I was away last year and did do a, um eight-track recording of a, of a really minimal Palm Springs thing that's coming out hopefully soon. So it'll just be Palm Springs and Friends and we'll just get real 70s folk. Cool. Just <laughs> chase that for a little while, but yeah. 
It is on the horizon. It's not stopped yet. Is that liberating in a way? I mean, given you're still um, working with Sarah and Raquel with ModCon, to kind of not feel like you have to write songs to fit Palm Springs and what that had been as kind of more a solo project and then work on a totally new thing with yeah, those same people? Yeah, I guess um, it's sort of... It's very clear when the songs sort of start what which kind of camp they're going to fall into and I think the relief comes from... Um, because before we sort of felt like it was almost a compromise, we were sort of, I don't know, making some weird choices and it was a bit unclear, but now there's such a distinct line between the the outcomes and what the songs end up being. It's just really fun. You can really chase an idea and fulfil it properly. So it feels good, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and both Sarah and Raquel, of course, have their own things going on as well. Yeah, it's a mad, mad world. Um, No, it's just inspiring. They're so, you know, we're all very active and just really encourage each other and, um, you know, just, I don't know, really, really committed to to what we're all doing. And Sarah's about to release an album under her um, solo project, which is Golden Syrup, which just is completely blowing my mind. Mm. Um, She's playing a show Friday and releasing that album in full on Friday through Nice Music. And Raquel too, like I've known Raquel for so long and we live together and just watching her develop her so completely original project, um, Various Asses, and to see her at Meredith last year just slaying it at 1am in front yeah. of <laughs> 10,000 people or whatever, so it's like, oh, this is the best. Yeah, yeah, so it's really great to work with those two. I'm very lucky every day. Thank you. <laughs> Does that make you a super group? I don't know. How you- <laughs> no, I hate super group. It's so, I don't know, I feel like that's... I just feel, you know, just collaborating with people. I mean, that's the really fun thing about joining bands or thinking about, you know, meeting people in the music community or getting inspired by the people who are playing around us. And there's so many incredible contemporaries. You often play like band alchemy and mm. it's like, oh, what, who who could you put together and just make an incredible soup? Um, but uh, we've, yeah, I just feel really lucky to be alongside those two. Mm. I feel good. Well, I mean, it's been said so many times before, but there's an incredible kind of music ecosystem in, in Melbourne and Victoria. And I think, did Mikey Young master ModCon? He did. So, I mean, even Mikey's involved in so many different projects. Yes. Gareth recorded <laughs> yeah. it. So it's all kind of, everyone's very much immersed yeah. in different um, facets of the music scene. Yeah, it's true. Mm. And um, it's lovely, you know, we're very open, you know, people, I feel just like there's a great community in that, I'm often talking about what people are doing in the future and different ways other people can help and there's just, yeah, it keeps on cultivating itself. It's very inspiring. So the first we heard from ModCon was uh, the split seven inch you put out with Fair Maiden Mm. last year. How did that come about? Um, So that's another example of just, um, you know, crushing on people in the scene. Like um, I think... Uh, Ellen, who fronts Fair Maiden, I reckon I was a very young radio announcer on PBS and heard the very first Fair Maiden um, demo, which was just Ellen in her room, I think maybe with her brother or some kind of weird recording on a special awards compilation. And I was just like, this is the best song. And just sort of, I knew she lived in Adelaide, but sort of had that on my periphery and really admired her songwriting. It's sort of this weird gothic sort of super cool, amazing harmonies. Um, and so I just watched that project and sort of thought about opportunities and just where we could maybe collaborate in the future. And um, Steph Crace from Summerflake is also an inspiring shredder. And um, just came about that I sort of realised that both of us, um, Fair Maiden and I guess Palm Springs, but ModCon hadn't had worked for a long time but hadn't actually released a debut record yet. Mm. Just sort of maybe thought they were in the same place. And they were. And they were really keen to, to, to put it out. 
Um, yeah, so it was just a limited thing, it, you know, limited edition, both of them are singles from forthcoming albums. So it was just an exciting time to get that documented. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I can't wait to hear more from them as well. Yeah, I reckon their album was going to be incredible. The last couple of times I've seen them play, it's really mind-blowing. So yeah, exciting. Mm. Well, um, well, people can catch you uh, ModCon playing tonight with Michael Beach, uh, Hexted and Heatwave um, down at the Northcote Social Club. It's all yes. free, as we mentioned before. But um, you've also got a single launch coming up, which you just alluded to earlier on Sunday, Feb 18th. Yeah. Um, also an unreal thing that's happening on Sundays down there. It's a free day as well. And I've just noticed they've been putting some incredible lineups together. And we're lucky we're doing it with Eat Man and Jackie Winter, who are also good friends of ours, who are doing a remix of the single as well. And I should be getting oh, that awesome. today. So I've heard a little snippet um, of the mastering session and um, I'm yet to fully um, understand what Jackie Winter are doing to the track, but I'm <laughs> really excited. Um, is, you know, Phil John Frito behind that project, sort of the first person we thought, oh, who could do a remix? And it's a pretty unique person to have really great rock and roll chops and then also a huge knowledge of a lot of analogue, weird, electronic mm. stuff. So I'm very excited to put that out and they'll be coming out together digitally at the end of the week, I think, and, yeah, launching that on 18th. Fantastic. Happy tease. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you got a lot going on. Yep. Just keep <laughs> drinking this coffee. That's right. <laughs> yep. Stay away I from just love mix. the enthusiasm. <laughs> You're just so into it. It's, um, yeah. I am. I mean, there's no other choice. Otherwise, <laughs> I relate to that. <laughs> no, 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 I'm stoked every day. No, I, that's a weird thing to say. That's not true at all. But I'm very happy to be doing what I'm doing and, um, yeah, I'm excited. It's great. So are we. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, Letting um, me rant in the morning. For sure, anytime. And stay away from those snakes. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> and so your album will be out, ModCon, in April this Just stage. pencil in the date. It's the 20th of April at the Toad Hotel. So I'm building around that. Fantastic. But that's when the launch is and I'm sure it'll be out before that. Awesome. Um, I'll send it your way. And again, ModCon playing tonight down uh, Monday Night Mass, wind it up at the Northcote Social Club, all free. It'd be a great one to get along to. have been chatting to Erica Dunn. Thanks so much for stopping by Triple R. Legends. Thanks. Thanks, Erica.